So I know in various cultures and in various places, eye contact can be eye contact can be seen as something positive or something negative. Look at me when I talk to you um, can actually erode trust. That is a, a place of, of vulnerability. But in, in parenting, we found ourselves when our kids were little often saying, look at my eyes because their eyes were all over the place. And sometimes their eyes are all over, all over the place because they were trying to um, divert our attention from the fact that they had just marked all over our furniture with a Sharpie. And uh, uh, sometimes their, their eyes darting all over the place was out of shame. Sometimes it was just out of um, being distracted. And so we would, we would say, look at my eyes, look at my eyes. And it was so, so hard for them to look at our eyes. That's a place of being exposed, right? We have some uh, neighbors down the street uh, whom we love, and they have these three-year-old twins. And part of their nightly ritual is our hugs and kisses, but then they grab your face and, and they say, eyeballs. And they just fixate on your eyeballs. And it is fantastic. And so this is an eyeball sermon. This is a look at me when I'm talking to you sermon. And as we look at Acts today, uh, I want to invite us into it, put us into um, that setting. But I want us to um, think about what does it mean to gaze at Jesus? And what does it mean that Jesus gazes at us? And then what does it mean to actually see the world the way that he sees it? So if you're new to Campus House, welcome. So glad you're here. This semester, we are looking at the book of Acts. And so Acts chapter 3 is where we are today. To catch you up a bit, Acts is written by a guy named Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was a missionary, traveled with Paul on a lot of his missionary journeys. He was also an historian who recorded the life of Jesus. And then Acts is part two. Acts is the sequel to that. In uh, Acts chapter one starts, he says, Theophilus, I'm, I'm writing to you. Um, in my first volume in the gospel, I wrote to you everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so Acts is a continuation of what Jesus continues to do, continues to teach, the presence and power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit um, as the church is launched. And so Acts chapter 2, we get the Holy Spirit coming, and we get the church is launched. Last week, uh, Rick taught from the last part of chapter 2. And just to refresh your memory, this was a portrait of the church. It says in verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, into the fellowship, into breaking of bread, into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And so this incredible portrait, this incredible picture of the early church, and they just gathered every time that they could possibly gather. And part of their gathering was this intimate fellowship and just being together and being, being known and being seen. 
And part of that was time in the word together and time in prayer together, having all things in common. There was no selfishness and there was no posturing. It was just a oneness and a sweet unity. And God continued to add to their number daily. What an incredible picture. In Acts chapter 3, though, we see the church going back outside the doors. I think there's always this temptation to um, capture this moment of intimacy or this moment of togetherness, of unity. And the Holy Spirit constantly takes us back outside the doors because the church isn't meant to be just this bubble, just this country club of, of safety and togetherness. We are to be church on mission. The church isn't meant to be a place that insulates and isolates, but rather a place where the gospel of Jesus, of making outsiders insiders, is lived out in you and through you, no matter where you go. So that's the picture we get in Acts chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, um, we read that uh, many signs and wonders were being done. In Acts chapter 3 is an example of that. Let me read this before we get going. Dallas Willard said, Jesus' commission to the early Christians was to bring the presence of the kingdom and its king into every corner of human life simply by fully living in the kingdom with him. Churches are not the kingdom of God but primary and inevitable expressions, outposts, and instrumentalities of the presence of the kingdom among us. They are societies of Jesus springing up in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the furthest points on earth. It just keeps going. It keeps going. So here we go. Signs and wonders. Here's an example. Chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him as did John. And then Peter said, look at my eyes, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. In taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong, and he jumped to his feet, and he began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God, and when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, like used to like five minutes ago, Right? And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter and John are just going to the temple to pray, as usual. That's what they did every day. They were devout 
Jews who were Jesus followers. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, devout Jews went to the temple to pray. And as they came to the temple, this man who had been crippled since birth encountered them. In most cities today, it's common to see, uh, see the homeless in particular kind of strategic places where there's a lot of traffic. And the same was true in Jerusalem. This was outside the temple gate. And so worshipers coming to the temple would come by this man every day. His family and friends had to bring him to this place. He was completely dependent on others. He hadn't walked in his entire life. So here he was at this gate. The gate was called beautiful. And every day he would beg. He would beg in order to eat. He would beg in order to live. This was his existence. This was his reality. This is all that he knew. He holds out his hand expecting a handout, but he gets way more. Peter says, look, I I don't have any money. I've been walking with Jesus for three years. I don't don't have any money. But here's what I have. I have Jesus. (laughs) So in the name of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, in his name, stand up. And walk. And then Peter, fully expecting in faith that God had actually healed this guy, he grabs him by the hand and lifts him up. So that's Peter's faith. This doesn't talk about that man's faith that healed him. This was Peter and John's faith. This is the power and the name and the authority of Jesus that did the miracle. Pulls him to his feet. These feet had never felt the support, never been able to support this man's weight. And now he is walking and leaping, right? So then use your imagination to think about what the temple goers were thinking. Here, these people had passed by this man day in and day out. He was a fixture in the community. They had gone by him. Possibly they had dropped a coin in his hand. But now they see him completely healed. And in verse 9, the people in the court were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. But also a lot of questions. This was a teachable moment about the authority of Jesus. Remember that this miracle happened at the temple gate. And so these were devout Jews. These were worshipers. They believed in God. They just didn't have Jesus yet. So Jesus takes, I mean, sorry, Peter takes this miraculous event that sparks their curiosity and their imaginations. And then he explains what happened. He interprets it to them with this speech with this sermon. He invites them to see with their ears as he connects the dots about what just happened. Verse 11, while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, 
fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? Peter immediately diverts attention off of him and onto Jesus. It wasn't Peter and John that healed this man. It was the power, the authority of Jesus. This miracle came from Jesus. It's his power. And Peter is creating this context to let them know that this same Jesus, this same divine power, this this is the same Jesus that they had crucified just a few weeks earlier. With the healed beggar still clinging to him, Peter gives this second speech, the second sermon in the book of Acts. And here it is, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus you, you, you all handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned him, the holy and righteous one, and asked actually that a murderer be released in his place. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. So now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what had been foretold through the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Let me give you an example. For for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You've got to listen to everything that he tells you. Anyone who doesn't listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. That's Peter's sermon. A couple of weeks ago, we read through Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2. We talked about how in his first sermon, Peter engages their imagination, rather the Holy Spirit does, because tongues of fire are like sitting on their heads, and then they rush out into the street, and they are sharing the gospel in the languages of all of the people who represent the whole world, right? He captured their imaginations and their curiosity and all the people came running and then he captured and engaged their minds. He explained it to them and then he engaged their hearts. 
Acts 2.37, they were cut to the heart and said, what do we do with this? Same thing happens in Acts chapter 3. And this is a really awesome way that we can engage a sermon with our imaginations as well as with our minds in our hearts. This miraculous thing happens and the people come running in astonishment. And then Peter explains what the healing means. And this is the essence of his sermon. He says, he starts with connecting the dots of God's epic plan of redemption back to the Old Testament. These are Jews, devout Jews. And so he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his servant, Jesus. And then he highlights Moses and Samuel and Abraham as examples of this. And it's really cool because the Moses quote is this, you must listen to everything he tells you. The Moses quote is capturing the fact that Jesus is the word. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, right? Moses says, this coming Messiah is the word. You must listen to everything he tells you. And then he mentions Samuel. And Samuel, the story of Samuel, really is a story of David. And David was the most amazing king Israel ever had. And his kingdom flourished. But David was a prototype, just a, just a predecessor to the true king, Jesus. In fact, Jesus came through the line of David. So David and his kingdom pointed forward to this Messiah. And then he mentions Abraham. And specifically, this covenant that God made with Abraham, that this blessing, this, this promise, this covenant, it's not just about you, but through you, through this people, God says, I will bless all nations. It's a mission. So these amazing themes of word and of kingdom and of mission. Those are wrapped up in this sermon. Isn't that cool? And then he says this. He calls them out. He sets the record straight about Jesus and their responsibility in his crucifixion. This is harsh. He says, you handed him over. You disowned him. You traded him for a murderer. In this one, you killed the author of life, this oxymoronic statement. You killed the author of life. The rejection of Jesus was, in the words of one writer, a tragic human no that God has overcome in the powerful yes of the resurrection. And then Peter extends grace. The Holy Spirit convicts and then comes right behind the conviction with grace. Peter says, what you did in ignorance can be set right through repentance and receiving the Savior that you just rejected. You didn't know what you were doing, but God knew exactly what he was doing. And then he calls them to repent. I mentioned Acts chapter 2, that sermon 
his first sermon, he follows this kind of same outline. This miracle happened. This is the explanation. He connects the dots with the Old Testament. He says, you killed the author. You killed Jesus. In Acts 2, the people were cut to the heart, and they said, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That a response to the fact that we need a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior, a response is always baptism and always repentance for the forgiveness of sin and for the gift of the Spirit. In this sermon, he doesn't mention baptism. It's implied, but he does mention repentance. And repentance, just for a simple visual, is doing a 180. It's like, I was going this direction. And I was, this direction was really going away from Jesus who is over there. And when I'm going in this direction, I'm going in my own sufficiency. All I can see is what's ahead of my life for me. And in this direction is selfishness. And in this direction is sin. And in this direction is not intimacy with the creator of the universe. Right? And we've all been there. Romans says, Paul says in Romans, We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so repentance isn't just for the really, really bad and isn't just for the really, really lost. Repentance is across the board. He's talking to devout Jews. He's talking to very religious people who spent every day in the temple worshiping. His word to them is repent. Repentance is turning around and going after Jesus with everything that you have. So when you first become a Christian, repentance is part of the deal, as is baptism, as is a confession of faith. This Friday night, we're going to have a, a, our first kind of big Friday night worship time in this room. Please come. It's amazing. But we're also going to have a baptism service. If you haven't been baptized yet, we invite you to do so. It's, it's, it's part of the deal. You know, Jesus said do it, and so that's the reason we do it. There's more to it. It's this amazing picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is, it's identifying with the fact that we need a Savior, right? It's a very visual, public demonstration of what's going on in our heart. And we confess part of what we do at baptism is, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the one, the only one who can truly save? Yeah, I do. And then we repent. Do you repent of your sin? Do you turn your back on a way of life that is headed toward death and destruction and turn around in order to receive the abundant life of Jesus. Peter calls them to repentance. And he says, this is what happens when we repent. Our sins are wiped out, he says. That means obliterated. Completely gone. 
because they've been removed from us and put on Jesus, who once and for all died for them so that we can have forgiveness and freedom. Isn't that amazing? Our sins are wiped out. And then he said, times of refreshing can come from the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I want some of that. We strive and we strive and we strive and we fill our lives with all kinds of stuff, trying to find satisfaction, and it never, ever does. And we find ourselves just burned out and tired and dry in, in repentance, in aligning with the truth and grace of Jesus, in, in really receiving his love, times of refreshing come. An overflow of the heart is what he's offering you. And the third thing he says about repentance is that Jesus is in the process of restoring all things. That's what his kingdom is about. It's a renovation project, right? He's renovating our hearts and our minds. He's, he's also renovating and restoring all things. That comes to its consummation when he returns. And in the meantime, we get to participate in that. To how we live and how we see the world and how we meet the needs that exist around us and how we proclaim the gospel, all of that is pushing back the effects of the fall and bringing light onto the street. We got to pray with one of the policemen after a starry night. This is like 3.20 in the morning. He's back, he's out on that street. He came up and he's, we didn't know, but we saw all the police cars down a block away, and there had been a shooting. Perhaps you heard about that. He came up and said, would you pray for me? Would you pray for us? So we got to, we got to pray for him on the street, which was a real honor. But he said this. He said, what a contrast between this, where the festival was on these streets of, with light. And he used the word tranquility. <laughs> And then a block away is darkness and chaos. That is part of our calling, to push back the darkness. Not with our own light, but with the light of Jesus. So that's the essence of, repent, of repentance. Your sins will be wiped out. Times of refreshing will come. You get to participate in this restoration project. That's the end of Peter's sermon. My, mine's going to keep going for a little, just a little bit longer because I'm not done yet, right? I, I want us to just look really briefly at just a few snapshots. We, at Starry Night, we took a, about a thousand Polaroids. In um, so these are these are some Polaroids from Acts chapter three. First of all, there's this snapshot of unmet expectation. 
And usually when we think of unmet expectation, we think, oh, I had the bar set high and it just didn't happen. This is the reverse because the gospel is the upside down kingdom of Jesus, right? As I was reading through this, I thought immediately of this man. His name is Steve and uh, Steve Donnelly. He, uh, for three decades, he sat down in Chauncey Village and uh, right across the street from Gray House. And he, he would just simply ask for a quarter. And sometimes that's all he'd say, just quarter. Sometimes he wouldn't have to say anything because people just knew he was quarter Steve. And so they would drop a quarter in his hat or his bucket, his hand, quarter. Delightful, um, very easygoing uh, man, not, not many words, but just kind of kept to himself. He would come into Gray House to warm up and get a cup of coffee. And, but uh, he just, he, he passed away this last December. But a couple of years before that, it was a particularly cold night. And one of the business owners around Chauncey Village saw him. And, and he was frozen. He was in really bad shape. She talked him into going to the, to the hospital and so he received care. And then she kept going. She, she did a GoFundMe project and raised money to help take care of Steve. And then they found out that he was actually a veteran. So they got him into the veteran's home. And for the last two years of his life, he had three meals a day. And he had a warm bed. And he had people that were caring for him. Quarter Steve, his expectation of a handout got blown up by the kindness and compassion of this woman and a bunch of other people that came alongside him. That's just, and, and that's just a snapshot of this beggar we find in Acts chapter 3. And it's really the way of Jesus that he blows up our expectations. So as you think about your own expectations... Because we all have them. We have assumptions. We have expectations. Can we submit those to the lordship of Jesus? Part of this deconstruction and reconstruction process that we're in isn't just about our worldview. and isn't just about our theology. But it's also about our expectations. Can we say, this is what I thought life should be like. Can we submit that to the lordship of Jesus who, according to Ephesians 3, goes way beyond what we could ask or imagine? You give God an inch, he takes a mile. You crack the door open, he blows it away. But it is an act of surrender in order to give up our expectations in order to receive his expectations. Okay? That's the first snapshot. Second one is the one of the beggar. The one of the beggar over 40 years this guy was helpless. He was dependent on others. Unable to work. 
when he was healed, he, he got to walk and not just walk, but, but to jump. Think about that. The, the, the man had never jumped and now he's got a vertical, right? But way beyond that, suddenly he was allowed into the temple to worship. He had always been barred from worship because of his disability. The lame, the blind, the Gentiles weren't allowed to come into the gate because of their disabilities and because of their ethnicities. So more important than the fact that he could walk or jump, now he could worship for the first time. This outsider was now an insider, which leads to this third snapshot, and that's the gate. Can you throw that up there? This gate, it was 75 feet tall. It was covered in bronze. It was, it was amazing. In fact, the whole temple was amazing. This is Herod's temple. And so lots of gold, lots of marble, lots of brass. This gate was called beautiful, which was fairly ironic. Because even though the construction of it was beautiful, for so many, it was a beautiful barrier instead of a beautiful bridge. Again, I want to come back to this mission of the church is to make outsiders insiders, to bring the ways and the means of Christ and his kingdom, his grace, his justice, his restoration in their various forms to a world that desperately wants the doors opened. to make room. Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is the only door, the way from the outside to the inside, from death to life, from despair to hope, from isolation to community, from lost to found. He's the door. But once people move from outsider to insider, that's not the end of the story. Being an insider isn't part of an exclusive club. It means you're part of a movement. It means you're part of a revolution. You're part of a mission. Coming alongside other outsiders and introducing them to the one who makes them insiders to the grace of Jesus. It's keeping the door open. The door meaning Jesus. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility, making a way for any who would receive him to have insider status. That's you, all y'all. But it's also tens of thousands of others on this campus and in this city and in this world. Right? Here's the other snapshot. Just eyes. You, you see it all the way through this passage. Peter and John are heading to the temple, and the beggar sees them first. And then Peter and John both, and they turn and they look at him. And then they tell them, look at my eyes, right? And he does. And then he gave them his full attention, thinking he would get a handout.
about how many people walked by him on a regular basis. Basis. Think about how many times he had been ignored and looked past, but Peter and John are looking straight at him. And then the people observed. They, they saw and they, they recognized that this is the same lame man. And then Peter gives his sermon. He says, why are you staring at us? Don't stare at us. He redirects their gaze at Jesus. So eyes are a big deal in this passage. And this man, his eyes had constantly been diverted by shame and by just being passed over, over and over. But Jesus, through Peter and John, sees him. And he knows him. And he loves them. In fact, if you do, you know, Google search of Jesus turning and looking all the way through the Gospels, He turns and he looks. In one significant time with Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times, right? In the courtyard the night before the crucifixion. Third time, the rooster crows as Jesus is walking across the courtyard. And the gospel says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter not with eyes of condemnation, not with eyes of how could you do this to me, but with eyes of forgiveness. Jesus turns and he looks at each of us. He knows us. He sees us. He loves us. Jesus said that in Luke 7, He said, the blind are getting their sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are raised, the poor are given good news. These are all signs of the kingdom. So healing is a sign of the kingdom, but salvation is even more of a sign. The Holy Spirit, through Peter and John, are using this miracle of healing the lame man as a bridge to proclaim the gospel. And that's not bait and switch. It's a more complete picture of the fullness that restoration in Christ brings. So I want to sum up this whole thing in one really massive run-on sentence. Are you ready? Peter engages their minds and their hearts, explaining through Scripture what is going on in calling them to encounter Jesus, to repent of their sin, to receive the grace and forgiveness of God and the gift of the Holy Spirit, who then continues to sanctify and transform every part of their lives and within the context of this new community called church, to share this good news with others and bring the kingdom of Jesus, his justice, his healing, his restoration, his reconciliation, his peace, his joy, his hope, his love into every part of the world. That is the ongoing work of Jesus in and through you folks. That's what it means to be a Christian. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And he calls you from the outside in. And then together we reflect him 
embody and demonstrate Jesus and his kingdom to the world around us, cutting through barriers in order to give the hope of the gospel to a world that is so desperate for it, to your roommate who is so desperate for it, to your divorced parents who are so desperate for it, for you who is so desperate. And here's the deal. We're all beggars. We're all beggars. We're all in need of the love and the grace of Jesus to break through the barrier into our lives. A long time ago, people said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That is true. But here's the good news. In the Sermon on the Mount message version, Jesus says, blessed are the spiritual zeros. Say, I'm a spiritual zero. (laughs) Hello, spiritual zeros. Me too. Blessed are the spiritual bankrupt. Blessed are the deprived and deficient. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. When the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them. Blessed are all y'all beggars, all of us, when the kingdom of God breaks through. And ultimately, that's exactly what happened at the cross of Jesus. Jesus broke through.